There have been so many changes in the last 75 years. So many changes. 75 years ago, Salva had just been invented and saved my father's life when he came down with strep throat as a young man. But penicillin had not been discovered yet. Polio shots. I remember the little flags that would hang in the windows all over town. The Jackson Citizen Patriot had a running number on the front of the paper every week, every day, telling you how many people had contracted polio, spinal meningitis. It was just ravaging our nation. The polio vaccine had not yet been discovered. My dad's grocery store, I remember him getting the first freezer because frozen foods had not been discovered 75 years ago. If you were lucky, you had an ice tray, maybe, maybe in the corner of your refrigerator. Xerox. There was no such thing as Xerox. What we had in the place of Xerox was just awful. I mean, the copies we made were ugly and nasty and just tragic. Contact lenses. Nobody had discovered contact lenses. Credit cards, glory. I mean, nobody had come up with a credit card yet. Uh, uh, imagine that. And ballpoint pens. When I was going to school every desk had a little hole in it where the inkwell went. And you filled your fountain pen with that ink or dipped your pen in it. And then they invented ballpoint pens and the ballpoint pens were, out, were, were banned and outlawed from, from most rooms. They were so messy. You put it down and the ink just ran all over everything. It was just, I mean, there was... It was, it, it was awful. Nothing like today's quality. We hadn't come up with air conditioning yet. I remember Karsten's cafeteria in Detroit when they, they were the first place I remember with air conditioning and everybody hated it. It was way too cold. You got to go out into the heat. It was awful. It'll never last. Oh, I tell you, no dishwashers. We all took turns. You know, we all helped out. No clothes dryers. Had to hang them on a line outside or hang a line inside and clothespins. How many of you got a clothespin today? There you go. Oh, my goodness. There you go. What a throwback. Microwaves, electric typewriters, computers, satellites, internet, Pizza Hut, McDonald's, it goes on and on. All the things that did not exist 75 years ago. Well, when I came to Calvary, we didn't have air conditioning. 
We didn't have padded pews. We didn't have carpeting. We had two microphones without on and off switch, wired to a box back there in the corner, on and off, volume control. Kind of pitiful lighting. Had no PowerPoint, of course. How do we get along? You know what? We got along just fine. God was good. Even then, all the time, God was good. Do we want to go back to those days? Do we want to give up dishwashers and Xerox machines and power? No, no, we don't want to give that up. We don't want to give up uh, polio shots and penicillin. The technology is really wonderful. And, and through the technology, ministry has been greatly enhanced. But spiritually, morally, socially, there have been many changes. Changes that trouble and disturb us. Let's put up some slides here. Some of our folks might have seen these, but... Uh, Others of you had never seen it. Jim Garlow was a, uh, he was speaking at a religious broadcasters meeting and he talked about the history of Christianity. And he said, between 1607 and 1833, for 236 years at the beginning of our nation, Bible-believing Christians were the establishment of the nation. It doesn't mean that everybody was Christian, but the Christians, the Bible-believing Christians had such an impact on our society that society had a Christian conscience. And Bible-believing Christians were the establishment the establishment of this nation. Then, from 1833 to 1918, 85 years, we continued to be a predominant force. From 1918 until 1968, and now we're getting into the years when many of us existed, we, were, we had become a sub-dominant force. By 1968, oh, we know about the 60s, to 1988, 20 years, Christianity, Bible-believing Christians had become a subculture. From 88 to 98, the next 10 years, we were not a subculture primarily, but we were a counter, a counterculture. From 98 to 2008, there was 10 years in which we were no longer the establishment, we were no longer the thesis, but we had become an antithesis, an antithetical culture. We no longer were the primary establishment. We were no longer the primary thesis of what people believed and how they lived, but we had become a synthesis, and from that synthesis, from that antithesis, along with the thesis, we came up with the synthesis, which became the new thesis. 
And in 2008 to the present, we have actually become the persecuted church. Maybe we haven't felt it so much here in Battle Creek, but around the world, Bible-believing Christians have become a persecuted church. Psalm 11.3. David is writing this. And David speaks for all of us when he says, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? I don't know how many hours or days went by before David got to verse 4. But I assume he went to bed that night. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And maybe that's what you're wondering. Maybe you're raising children in this particular culture. And you realize that while it's never been a friend to grace, it's actually very actively opposed to grace today. Should we have children? Do you believe that God can keep your kids, protect your kids? Do you believe that God can raise a godly family in 2018? Of course he can. Of course he can. What can the righteous do? And then somewhere along the line, finally David was given Psalm 11.4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try, the children of men. Everything was fine with David. The Lord is in his holy temple, and the Lord is upon his throne in heaven. Look up, David said. Look up. Look up. There he is, just as Stephen said, look. As he was being martyred for Christ. As Stephen cried out and Saul must have heard him and he said, look. You, you wonder, did Saul look? Did he look? Did anybody look? They were just so angry as they were gnashing upon him and stoning him. He said, look, there he is, standing at the right hand. And David is saying the same thing. Look, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his throne in heaven. His eyes behold us. His eyelids see us. We're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. And in every generation, in every generation, we have been fine. God has always been good. 
God has always been good. God has always been sufficient in every generation. If you want to really look for the good old days, you're going to have to go all the way back to the garden. That was the end of the good old days as we know them. You're going to have to go back to the Garden of Eden, and that, and, and, and that didn't last very long. And so God has been upon his throne now for oh, about 6,000 and some years at least that we know of. He's been upon his throne, he's been seated in heaven, and he's been sovereign and reigning and ruling all of this time. God's plans and purposes have never, ever been in doubt or question. He is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Our God is the same if we'll just trust him. God help us to be the trusters. Yesterday they were talking about, uh, about do you believe what you believe? Do you really believe what you claim to believe? On Damascus, on the Damascus road after Paul had seen Stephen martyred and been instructed to look up. He was just riding along when God struck him down and he fell off of his horse, blinded. Oh, my. And Saul immediately knew it was God. He didn't question that. He said, Lord, who are you? And all oh, the answer that he got. He wasn't ready for the answer that he got. He said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. I'm the Jesus that Stephen was talking about when you were consenting to his death. And Paul's response was, Lord, what would you have me to do? God had big plans. God had such huge plans for Paul, the apostle. He would send him to Arabia for three years to deprogram him from his old pharisaical ways. I mean, if you thought Peter was a Pharisee, you know, and if you thought any of these others were, I mean, Paul was much more. He admitted that. He was a dyed-in-the-wool Pharisee. Three years later, he comes back, and it's finally been straightened out. And the mystery of the church, which had been hidden from people for 4,000 years, was revealed through Paul. What was the message that God gave to Paul to preach? And what was the message that Paul then gave 
For that, I would like you to turn with me to Titus. Titus chapter 1. In the first five verses of chapter 1, Paul instructs Titus to ordain spiritual leaders in the church. In chapter 2, he talks to the aged men or to the older men. He talks to the older women, to the young women, to the young men, to the servants, to the citizens. And then beginning, and allow me to read it before we start putting anything on the on the slides. These next few verses in chapter 2, beginning with verse 11, if you'll follow along in your Bibles. 2.11 For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And that grace of God teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly, in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This Christ who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Titus, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. And so now for 2,000 years, this message has gone forth. And it's really the only message we have. The grace of God hath, that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And this is what it teaches us. First of all, Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. Oh my. The temptation is always not to trust God. The temptation is always to trust in ourselves or the government or somebody else. The temptation is not to trust God, not to honor God, not to worship God, not to please God, glorify God, love God. The great commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might. And, and the temptation is, and, and our fallen default is to not do that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. That's always been there, and it's a verse we learn as children. But when we come into the trial, our temptation is, no, let's not do that. Denying ungod deny ungodliness. Say no to ungodliness and worldly lusts. Look at 1 John. 1 John 
1 John chapter 2, verse 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, that's a problem. The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world passes away, and the lusts thereof. But he that will do the will of God abides forever. Little children, it is the last time. John thought it was the last time 2,000 years ago, and he wasn't wrong. But things have not improved since then. And so he says to deny ungodliness. To, not, to deny, don't have anything to do with worldly lust. Deny the pride of life. Deny the lust of the eyes. Deny the lust of the flesh. Deny them. Deny them. How do we do that? Well, James tells us how. James, Peter, James chapter 4, verse 7. Here's what you need to do. James chapter 4, verse 7. First of all, submit yourselves therefore to God. That's the first thing you do before you resist, before you deny you submit yourself to God. In your own strength, you're going to fail miserably. It's going to be a disaster. You can't do this on your own. You require the eternal God. It was never meant that you should do this on your own. But having submitted yourself to God, now resist the devil. And here's the promise. The devil will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, Christian, and God will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourselves, Christian, and you know what? He will lift you up. That's a promise. Claim it. Claim it. It's never, ever been wrong. You are not the exception. God's promises are yea and amen. You submit yourself to God. You resist the devil. You deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. And he will flee from you. Then he goes on and he says you need to live soberly, righteously, and godly. You need to live soberly, righteously, and godly. By living soberly, he's talking about you. He said, he said, don't live reckless, careless lives. Don't live childish lives. 
Paul said, when I was a child, I thought as a child. I behaved as a child. But he said, I got older. I grew up, and I put away childish things. It's legal to be a kid. But don't, don't be a kid for all your life. That's a, that's a terrible waste of what God intended. Live soberly. Soberly. Husbands, live with your wives according to knowledge. Be smart. Be understanding, be intentional, be focused, be purposeful. Don't be a jerk. Get your act together. Live soberly. And then live righteously in your relationship with those around you. Live justly. Live justly in, your, in dealing with others. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You're going to need your loins girt about with truth. Always tell the truth. You're going to need your, the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the gospel of peace. You need the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. You stand against these things, and you find that you have a relationship and favor with men that is honoring to God. Live righteously. Live with the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And then finally, live godly. And maybe you say, well, we ought to turn those around. We ought to deal with Jesus, others, and you. I, I don't know. I, I, I think I'm going to go with the inspiration here. I think, I think Paul got it right. I don't know what he was thinking. When you see him, you want to ask him about that, you know. But uh, I, I think he got it right. He says, now, now, now live godly. More than righteous. But live Christ-like. In 2 Peter. 2 Peter, and this has become one of my favorite, favorite portions of Scripture in, in the last year or so. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We learned in Sunday school this morning, God created us to know him. He created us for fellowship. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given unto us everything that pertains unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called you to glory and virtue. God has first of all through his divine power given you everything you need for living and for godly living. Whereby are also given unto us great and exceeding Precious promises, that by these precious promises you might become part, partakers of a divine nature. And with that divine nature, you escape the corruption that is in the world. You say, well, how does God do that? I have no idea. But I don't worry about it. That's God's job. And he's really good at doing what he does. He keeps you. He keeps you in this sinful world, this world of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. What does God do? 
God, through his promises, he gives you a divine nature, and with that divine nature and the power of God, you escape the corruption that is in the world. Your kids will escape the corruption that is in the world. It works every time. Every time it's tried, God is faithful, and we escape. Live godly. And number three, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think we maybe don't spend enough time looking, expecting. The Bible says there are rewards for those that love is appearing. We're going to a wedding. We're going to be the bride. It's going to be a wedding like you've never, ever seen. You're going to be beautiful. And Jesus Christ is going to be the groom. It's going to be a supper. It's going to be a banquet. And whatever you're imagining, that's not it. <laughs> it's going to be a lot better. <laughs> a lot better. Looking for the blessed hope. Blessed hope. And looking for the glorious appearing of this great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what Paul instructed Titus to teach the first century Christians. 21 centuries later, the message is still as viable and as real and as trustworthy as it was 2,000 years ago. Denying, living, and looking. John wrote, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Satan may be the god of this world, but his days are numbered and he has absolutely no power over you that God does not grant him. We just read about what Peter wrote. God, through his divine power, has given us precious promises. And with these promises, we are given a divine nature, like unto God's own nature. And with that nature, we just roll through this world. And we avoid the corruption that devastates and destroys this world. Remember James said, submit yourself to God and resist the devil. He's got to flee. Paul said there's never going to be a temptation come that is so great that you cannot bear it. Paul also said, I can do all things. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And in Matthew, the well done. The well done is still waiting for every believer 
in every generation. There's no reason for you not to hear, well done. If you don't hear well done, you'd just cry forever if God didn't take away your tears. Pleasing him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Anyone that comes to God has got to believe two things. You've got to believe that God exists and that God is a rewarder, a well-donner for all those that diligently seek. I don't think we can talk about the good old days. Tom Brokaw wrote, a, wrote about the greater generation, greatest, greatest generation. That was a mistake. There were some great men and women. But there have been great men and women in every generation. You don't need to live at any particular time. you got to love that when the world was so wicked that every thought was only evil, God found a man by the name of Noah. That was a great day when God spared Noah and his family and made it possible for the race to continue. It was a great day when God saved that idolater Abraham. And he told him to go from Ur to the promised land. And Abraham obeyed God and went. That was a great day. It was a great day when Joseph moved into the palace of Egypt. After being thrown into a pit, after being abandoned by his brothers, after the problems he had with Potiphar and going to prison, he then ends up in the palace of Egypt. What a great day that God's, God's ordained servant was there in Egypt. What a great day when Moses, as a baby, was found by the daughter of Pharaoh and Moses was moved into the palace and there God prepared him to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. Great day. What a great day when that young boy David stood up against that burly Goliath and, and said, how dare you to defy the living God? You can't do that. That was a great day. It was a wonderful, great day when Joseph and Mary... Mary was just ready to deliver. This crazy king said, you got to go to Bethlehem and pay your taxes. And being a good citizen, Joseph and Mary headed for Bethlehem. And there Jesus, in the fullness of time, was born in a stable, one of the great, great days in all the history of mankind. Then that marvelous day when we see the Son of God 
nailed to a cross as the payment for our sin. I mean, they didn't re- they weren't expecting it, but they, they should have been out there on the third day when Jesus was raised from the dead and then ascended with the promise that he would return. It was a great day when Saul was saved on the road to Damascus. It was a great day when the church was born in the upper room, 120 people gathered together. What a great day when the word of God was completed and printed. And so we say, God, how are we doing? Is everything on schedule? What a great day when in Europe there was a great awakening and a bunch of pilgrims got on some boats and came to America. That was great. Thank you, Lord and established a nation that for 200 and some years was primarily Bible-believing. What a great day when Reverend Victor Beatty and a bunch of the good folks in Battle Creek met for the first time and established Calvary Baptist Church. That was a great day. Very personal. But it was a great day in 1944 when God visited Jackson, Michigan at the Jackson Gospel Tabernacle. And what a day when Brian Spencer accepted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. It doesn't get any better than that. That's as good a day as you're ever going to experience. Four years later, in the fulfillment of thousands of years of prophecy, Israel was established as a nation and recognized by America. Great day. And today we're here looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're looking and we're listening, and we're expecting to hear a shout, we're expecting to hear a trump, and we're expecting to be caught up into his presence. God's not done yet. We're still here. But he's sovereign. He reigns and rules. And you need to look up. You need to look. Jesus Christ is at this moment seated upon his throne in his holy temple. And even more amazing than that, Jesus Christ is here living in our lives, the temples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything is going to be fine. Trust him. Trust him. By the grace of God, learn to deny and to live and to look.